Hello, I'm Jonathan Davis, and I'd like to welcome you yet again to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast, in which I'm joined by Simon Elliott, the Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities, to talk about what's been going on this week and to look at some of the ways that the investment trust sector has been performing. This week, because it's been quite a quiet week in the markets, a short week uh, because of the VE Day holiday uh, today, the day we're recording, we thought it'd be a good idea to talk about some of the things that individual trusts have been doing and explain to listeners what they're doing and why they are distinctive things that investment trusts can do. But first of all, Simon, I'd like to start just with a quick short summary of what has happened this week in terms of the market and the way that investment trusts have performed. So it's been a relatively decent week uh, for the UK market. Uh, it was up just short of 3%. Uh, the investment trust company sector lagged it a little bit, uh, but still ended up the week above 2%. In terms of the sector average discounts, so that's looking across discounts across the whole investment trust sector, it was broadly unchanged. So 8.5% uh, is the sector average discount at the moment, and that compares with 1% at the start of the year, and 22% during the, uh, the depths of the market's despair back in, in March. So it seems to have settled around 8 8.5%. So it hasn't gone back to the levels we were, we were at before, which were exceptionally narrow by historical standards, but we're in this kind of range between 5 and 10% at the moment. That appears to be the situation. Let's move on and talk about one or two of the individual trusts that have either made announcements or reported results or so on this week. And let's talk about some of the things that they've been doing and try to explain what this means uh, for those who aren't perhaps quite as familiar with the sometimes intricate mechanisms by which investment trusts are managed. So let me start, if I may, Simon, by asking you about the Diverse Income Trust. This is an uh, equity income trust, I think I'm right in saying, and has been managed for a long time by uh, a fund manager called Gervais Williams and his colleagues. But they've just done something quite interesting, both in terms of their dividend and more interesting enough in terms of offering their shareholders a redemption uh, opportunity. And perhaps you could just explain why trusts do that and what actually is involved if a trust does give investors a redemption opportunity. So Diverse Income Trust has uh, an annual redemption facility whereby uh, shareholders once a year at the end of May are able to redeem an unlimited uh, amount of shares. And the idea is that this redemption will take place at a price that will be close to NAV. Now, clearly with an investment trust company, ordinarily you can buy and sell shares. Uh, they're listed on the stock exchange on the London stock market. But in the case of one or two uh, investment trust companies, including diverse income, um, there are additional mechanisms in place. And the idea behind them is that they seek to alleviate the risk of discount volatility. Uh, because as we know, a number of investment trust companies do and can trade on discounts. So that's the difference between the NAV per share and the share price per share. By allowing shareholders you know, on once a year, some, some funds do it a bit more regularly, uh, an ability to kind of walk away at a price close to NAV, it should, in theory, mean that that discount never becomes too large. What happened if 50% uh, of the shareholders wanted to redeem their shares? I mean, it is actually unlimited in the sense you, you've said. So what happens then if there's a very large redemption feedback, if you like, from the shareholders? So in that particular case, what they would have to do is create a redemption pool. So if it was 50%, say half the assets of the company would be put into that redemption pool and they would be sold over a period of time. And it may, it, to be honest, it may take a little bit of time. I mean, Diverse Income Trust uh, invests in the UK market, but it's uh, effectively an unconstrained 
all cap mandate. So you're going to have uh, quite a large element in AIM listed companies and in small cap companies, as well as probably um, just under a third of FTSE 100 companies. So in that particular scenario, it may take a bit of time just to liquidate that portfolio before money came back to shareholders. Though in all fairness, um, Diverse Income Trust has been running this mechanism now since uh, it was launched a number of years ago, uh, and we've never seen anything like that kind of quantum come up. I mean, ordinarily, it would be anything between 1%, 2 or up to 5% of the shareholder register is redeemed at any one moment in time. And actually, in that particular case, it's worked well as a mechanism for ensuring that that fund has traded around NAV on average over the last few years. And that's despite having, uh, as you say, quite a lot of exposure in small companies and uh, AIM-listed companies, which often, uh, if it was in a small cap investment trust, it might well be trading at a big discount. So that's quite important. I can see that. So in a way, it's a, it's a kind of vote of uh, confidence by the management, if you like, that they're actually not going to get put out of business anytime soon. So um, it forced them to actually keep their nose to the grindstone and uh, to do a good job. Absolutely. I mean, if this were an open-ended fund, then clearly the managers would be managing flows in and out all the time. That's part of the ongoing process of running an open-ended fund, unless, of course, uh, it's forced to gate, which uh, we all know on one or two occasions that has happened. But the way that they've done it is they've said, well, look, you know, on a 12-month basis, we're absolutely look to get your money at work. But once a year, it seems only appropriate in this particular case that we will give you some kind of mechanism to, to walk away at NAV. And as I say, there are a number of investment trust companies, a small number, to be fair, have got a similar mechanisms, different time periods. You know, some might be every five years. BlackRock Frontiers is a, an example of that, whereby every five years, shareholders can, can walk away at NAV. And it just allows the manager not to worry about those day-to-day flows, can take long-term investment decisions but still gives the shareholders the chance to, to walk away at a time um, should they wish. Okay, so let's now talk about a second investment trust which made a, a slightly different announcement. This is Aberdeen New Tie, which is a very specialist investment trust that invests mainly in, uh, in Thailand, as its name suggests, and in Asia, other parts of Asia. Now, there's a couple of interesting things about what they've announced recently. One is that they have set some kind of three-year deadline for their own trust to perform. What are they doing and how is that different from what we've just been describing uh, in the case of Diverse? So they announced their annual results recently and it had a slightly more difficult period. They actually underperformed the benchmark in that last uh, year, 12 months to 28th of February uh, this year. And they've also seen a, a change in the, in the management team there as well. So what the board have said is, look, if I, over the three years to the end of February 2023, um, that the fund underperforms in NAV terms, then there will be a review. We'll review where we are in terms of the mandate, in terms of the investment manager, and that review may include uh, a cash option. So there's nothing definitive on the table in that particular instance, but it just allows uh, shareholders to know that the board are very conscious that, that you know the performance has perhaps not been as good as they would like, and there has been a management change, and it just enables them to say, look, you know, give us three years and we'll see where we're going with this one. Okay, so one other aspect of that announcement which I noticed, it is that the board have also said that they are now in future going to be basing the management fee, that's how much money they get paid for managing the, the, the trust, they're going to base it on market capitalization rather on net assets. So can you explain to us what, uh, what that means? What is the impact of that? And again, why are they doing that? So most investment trust companies will set their management fees on net assets or even gross assets, but there are a you know, reasonable number that will look to set their fees um, on a market cap basis. So in other words, the share price really matters 
in terms of what the investment managers get back in terms of their fees. Now, the theory behind adopting that kind of approach is that it aligns uh, the investment manager's interest to those of shareholders. Clearly, shareholders care greatly what happens to the share price uh, because that's ultimately the worth of their holding in the company. So by switching the management fees to, to a market cap, it brings that alignment together. Now, the flip side of that argument is, well, investment manager is not actually responsible for the share price. It's responsible for the NAV performance. Uh, and that's what the managers strive very hard uh, to do. So the share price is a kind of a secondary uh, issue. And frankly, it might be more influenced by other, other mechanisms such as buybacks. That's into the, in the, the remit of the board. So it's, it's not without its controversy, but it does, as I say, mean that the investment manager becomes much more focused on where the share price is because that will impact on its fees. And in practical terms, if the investment trust is, is trading at a discount, in other words, the share price is below the net asset value per share, then obviously that implies that the fees the manager receives are going to be lower than they would be if they were based on, on the net asset value per share. So they are taking a risk that the fees are going to be lower than they would otherwise be. Uh, but does it also apply on the other side? If the trust is trading at a premium, in other words, the share price is higher than the net asset value per share, does that mean they get more money for what they do? So it depends how the management uh, agreement is worded. In theory, that could be uh, the case, though in practice, um, what you often find is it, the, the way these things are worded, it's the lower of net asset value and market caps. You take, you take the lower number. In the case where it was just simply on a market cap basis, then what you often find is investment trust companies issuing new shares to take advantage of their premium rating. So that premium, so therefore the market cap never becomes too extended compared with, with the net asset value of the company. Just before we finish on this topic, I mean, how, how common is this practice? As you said, there's, there's a few that do it. Will there be more companies trying to do this now, or is it just specific to uh, one or two examples? I think it's in the minority, and I think it's in the minority because, uh, you know, the investment management company can turn around and say, well, as discussed, the share price is not in our control. That's, it's subject to a number of different uh, factors, you know, rewarders for what we can do, which is move the NAV performance on, but without kind of putting in buybacks and tender powers in the hands of the investment manager, and it's not their decisions then it seems a little amiss to have them responsible for the share price as well. Let's move on then to another trust, which has been made an announcement in the last few days. And this is uh, JP Morgan Global Growth and Income. Uh, I think you can have a pretty clear idea of who is managing that trust and what it, what it does. They've been talking about their method of paying an in, what's called an enhanced dividend. Can you explain uh, what an enhanced dividend is? And again, why are this trust taking that particular line as far as paying dividends is concerned. Yeah, so this is a very interesting investment trust company. As, as you uh, rightly said, it's, it's managed by JP Morgan Asset Management and investing in global equities. So companies listed around the world. And the big idea behind it is that this is a best ideas global equity portfolio. As probably comes as no surprise, JP Morgan has a fantastic uh, resource of analysts. They have 80 analysts uh, based around the world looking at uh, any number of listed companies. And the idea behind this particular investment trust is that the portfolio managers, of which there are three, can cherry pick those best ideas to build up the portfolio. Now, when they come to do that, they haven't got any consideration in terms of yield or how much revenue or how many uh, the level of dividends that these underlying companies are paying off. But the investment trust structure allows as you say, an enhanced dividend to be paid. So at the start of every financial year, the board dictate that 4% of net assets will be paid out as dividends on a quarterly basis 
to shareholders. So the investment managers can get on and do what they do, which is quite a growthy approach to investing in companies around the world. At the same time, the investment trust company can pay out this enhanced dividend. So where does it come from? Well, roughly speaking, probably half comes from the underlying revenue because some of these companies do pay dividends, but the rest is actually paid out of realized profits, so capital profits in other words. And, uh, and that gives it a yield of around about 4%. So it's enhanced in the sense that it is higher than the underlying yield on the investments that they're making, the companies they are investing in. Uh, so the 4% is higher than the dividend yield they're getting from the companies they invest in. And the difference is made up from capital. So that sounds like uh, quite a sensible thing to do. Why don't other investment trusts do the same thing? Well, there are a number that do this. Um, probably in the region of 20 plus or minus investment trust companies do it. Uh, they do it to different degrees, I think it's fair to say, but it's not without um, its controversy as well. So the critics of this kind of mechanism will say, well, this doesn't make sense because you're converting capital into income. And as we know from a, from a tax point of view, that can be inefficient. Income is normally taxed at a, depending on your personal circumstances, but invariably it's taxed at a higher rate than a capital gain. So many people would argue this does not make sense. However, um, other people would argue, and I've included myself in this, actually the proof's in the pudding. So when this particular uh, investment trust company adopted the policy, it was trading out on a, a 10 plus percent discount. Um, it was probably overshadowed by some of the other uh, larger growth orientated investment trust companies. What's happened since it uh, has put this enhanced dividend in place, it's been re-rated, it now trades at a premium. Um, it's performed well and it's uh, allowed uh, issuance as well, issuance at a premium. So it's now a market cap of over 400 million. What it's done, it's, it's attracted um, a broader base of shareholders. A lot of retail investors uh, get the idea of this and, and obviously see it as attractive. So even though in theory, uh, just leaving aside the tax considerations for the moment, it's uh, not necessarily a common sense thing to do in the sense that you're paying capital out as a dividend. It just, it underlines, I suppose, the fact that investors do like income. They do pay up for what they believe is, is a yield that is attractive. But of course, they may just be slightly fooling themselves if they think they're getting 4% as an as a income return on their investment, when in fact, all they're getting is, say, 2%. And they are, the other 2% is coming from selling down the value of their, uh, of their capital. You can see that's a complicated equation, um, but it does seem to work. I mean, what you're saying is it, it has had an effect on the discount, and therefore people perhaps price that security of the income above the uh, purity of the process, shall we say. I think it's very clear, and it's been one of the key investment trends over the last 10 years or so, that people uh, are looking for income. Uh, income is a very uh, key part of, of the investment process in this low interest rate environment that, we, that we've lived in now for the best part of 12 years. So sources of income, and particularly in this case where growth uh, investment approach has significantly outperformed a value uh, investment approach over the last 10 years. So enabled to have that kind of better capital appreciation and yet a yield at the same time is an attractive combination. It's, you know, you, you're having your cake and eat it to a greater or lesser extent. So in other words, as long as, as, long as the, uh, the return from the growth investments exceeds the amount by which you're, you're paying dividends out of capital, in that sense, you're, you're always going to be okay from an investor point of view. I can see that. Okay, well, let's move on to another one then. Uh, let's talk briefly about an investment trust called Edinburgh Worldwide. Again, the, uh, the clue may be in the name there. The reason I've picked out this one to talk about is that it's uh, recently been announced that it is going to be included in the 
FTSE 250 index. Now, a number of investment trusts are components of the uh, stock market indices. Perhaps you can explain you know, how many are in some of the main market indices and uh, how that process is determined. Who decides when an investment trust should be included in a stock market index? So there are just over 600 or so uh, listed companies that make up the FTSE All Share Index. Now, within that, you've got the FTSE 100, which by definition is 100 companies, the FTSE 250, so the next 250 in size, and then the balance of whatever 300 or so in, in the small cap. Now, within those 600 or so companies, there are around 200 are investment companies. So just under a third of the, all the, the companies that make up the FTSE All Share are, in fact, investment companies. However, where they are, and it's in, in the reason they end up in there, it's because of their market cap. Um, on a quarterly basis, the good people at FTSE look at the whole marketplace, they look at the largest companies, and then they rebalance their indices accordingly. They also look at the liquidity, so how much an individual company trades. Um, the investment companies uh, invariably are the mid and small cap end. So there are only two uh, investment companies in the FTSE 100 at the moment, so 3i Group and uh, Scottish Mortgage. Uh, which I think we talked about before. In the mid-cap, though, of those 250 mid-cap companies, 66 are currently investment companies, uh, and clearly there were a significant number in the small cap as well. So investment companies, um, by number, form a very large part of the FTSE All Share. In terms of overall weight, it's about 5% of the index uh, is uh, with investment companies at the moment. So that's uh, my reckoning. That's about a, a quarter of the of the companies in the uh, 250 index are investment companies, but overall they only make up five percent of the combined market capitalization. I guess that's that's important because otherwise people might uh, get a little uh, confused about what actually they're getting when they invest in uh, or when they look at some of these stock market indices. Uh, if it turns out that actually uh, what they're investing in is uh, investment companies that in themselves are also investing in other companies in the index. Isn't there an element of double counting or is that not what some people say? Uh, that was certainly an argument that, that people did make, uh, you know, 10 to 20 years ago. You hear it less these days, to be honest. I think there was a, an old view that investment trust companies were just geared versions of um, often UK listed companies. So you, again, the double counting argument. I think the reality is now the investment company sector has changed hugely over the particularly over the last 10 years, um, and in terms of the different asset classes that it provides exposure to, and also overseas companies as well. Um, so I think that idea that investment trust companies are just you know, giving you exp geared exposure to Shell, BP, AstraZeneca, and so on and so forth is actually uh, no longer true. So I think they are very much an important uh, part, and I would say this one type, a very important part of the, of the UK marketplace. And it does matter because when an investment company does get promoted into the all share, or as you mentioned, Edinburgh Worldwide has been promoted into the mid cap. So um, you would do see uh, buying on the back of that. So passive investment from ETFs, um, but also just the old fashioned index trackers is still quite an important component of, of market trade. So when these companies get promoted in, you do see some buying on the back of it. So probably about 7% of investment companies invariably held uh, by index trackers, people who just, just buy it because of the passive investment strategy that they're following. And I believe there are some quite smart uh, people in the market who, uh, knowing that there is going to be a, a quarterly change in the, in the composition of the main stock market indices, they kind of anticipate or a uh, pejorative expression would be to front run, they would anticipate which companies are going to be included in the index and they might buy them in the hope that an extra 
7% of uh, buyers who come in when they do join the index will uh, push the price up. Uh, is that a significant factor? Does it make a, that much difference to the price of an investment trust around the date that the quarterly change is made in the composition of indices? Uh, it can do is the short term. So, I mean, there is a lot of trade, as you rightly say, around the quarterly reviews. Um, the one in June is actually de- deemed the annual review, and it's a bit more, uh, you see far more changes at that particular moment in time. But uh, yes, it, for the ones that are a bit more borderline and their liquidity levels a little bit less, then you can see share price spikes um, or in the way, and also in the way, the way down as well. So if an investment trust company has slipped below the border, the threshold for inclusion, or, and this happens probably more often for one reason or another, it hasn't traded, not enough shares have been traded in a particular period of time and fails on liquidity grounds, then that can be a reason why it gets derated in the short term. So yes, you're right. There are a lot of people who look at, uh, you know, spend a lot of time building very sophisticated spreadsheets, looking at all these different factors and uh, trying to gauge where the market is. I guess one of the general themes that comes out of things we've been talking about so far is it is important for investors to, as it were, look under the bonnet of the things that they are investing in, uh, whether that's an index uh, or whether it's a particular investment company or a particular fund, uh, because you do need to understand exactly what it is you're getting. And I think that's one reason why it's always a good idea before you invest in investment trust to to study the annual report and to look at the fact sheets and and make sure you do understand whether... uh, the investment trust is paying income out of capital or whatever, or whether it's actually investing in the UK or overseas. Now, the, the AIC has, does uh, classify investment trusts into different sectors, and that's obviously important. Something like Edinburgh Worldwide, it's clear that that is investing globally. That thing that's pretty clear from the name. But in other cases, it's not always so clear what, what an investment trust is doing. And in any event, it is possible for investment trusts to invest outside the area of the category into which they're being allocated by the ASC. And I, I mentioned that because of there's an investment trust called Keystone Investment Trust. There isn't uh, much of a clue in the name as to what that investment trust does. But it's also of interest this week because it's been made a change in the amount of overseas investments it can make, even though it is a UK investment trust. Is that right? Have I got that message right? You have. So the board announced previously that they uh, the fund manager was allowed to invest up to 15% uh, in companies listed overseas, and they wish to increase that level to 20%. Uh, and it's a result of the fact that James Goldstone, the manager of that particular fund, and it's part of the Invesco uh, stable, he has a very high conviction with regard to uh, gold equity, so gold miners, basically. Uh, and he holds uh, a number of those companies uh, in his portfolio, and, and they'll obviously be in good performance this year, certainly. So the board wish to give him a bit more flexibility, and therefore they give a, a change of guidance, so he can go up to 20%. And it's worth noting that within the, the UK, and this is true for open-ended funds as it is for investment trusts, that um, the, the mandate is allowed to kind of drift so to 20% overseas and yet still be classified uh, as, a, as a, essentially a UK-focused fund. So um, there are a number of investment trusts that look at the UK that do look to kind of effectively broaden out their investment options by by investing in overseas. And maybe instead of buying uh, BP or Shell, they might look to buy a Total or or something of that nature or Roche instead of uh, AstraZeneca. So it's that kind of flexibility that the mandate allows. And I guess one reason why that might make sense, obviously, there is a risk that, again, as I say, investors are a bit confused about what they're buying. Uh, But one reason for that is that the the composition of the UK stock market overall is rather different from that of some other indices. 
the balance between different sectors is uh, not the same as, for example, in the in the United States market or the Japanese market. And uh, we are particularly for income heavily reliant on uh, just a few companies in the oil and gas sector and in the banking sector and the pharmaceutical sector. So I, I guess that does make sense. But it again, it underlines the need for shareholders to be clear about what it is that they're buying into when they join the, the uh, register of a investment trust. That's absolutely correct. Yes. Okay. So one last question, I think, for this week about something rather different, uh, which is that there have been uh, some investment trusts which have been looking to raise more money to invest in the areas that they are investing in. Now, normally, when the market's going through a bad patch, we've had a very sharp fall in the stock market this year. Uh, raising money in this way uh, becomes much harder because more investors are selling than buying, if you like, and uh, there's less demand. But there has been demand, and there's one in particular uh, caught my eye this week, which is uh, Supermarket Income is the name of the trust. And uh, as you won't be surprised to know, it invests in uh, supermarket real estate. In other words, the, uh, the places where supermarkets do their business. Can you explain, Simon, first of all, what they've done, how much money they've raised, and how that compares to what they were hoping to raise? and uh, how it is possible that in this kind of market that uh, some trusts like those can succeed where others are unable to. Yeah, I mean, in terms of commercial UK commercial property funds at the moment, I mean, these funds are, to a greater or lesser extent, out of favour. 30% discounts are not uncommon, and that's probably about the average level. But there's always one or two exceptions. Supermarket income rate is the most obvious one. It's trading at a a premium at the moment, probably 10 11% premium. Uh, and it offers a five, actually even higher than a 5% yield. Whereas, as you, you remember, a number of the UK commercial property funds have had to suspend or cut their dividends. So what they've done is they've seen a new investment opportunity. They're trading on a premium rating. They were uh, originally looking to raise $75 million of additional capital in order to make this new investment. The roadshow, when they went around to see potential investors or existing investors, it was very well received. And actually, they increased that level from 75 up to uh, just short of 140 million. So a not insubstantial amount of new capital was raised. And as I said, they've uh, pinpointed a new, so two specific assets with an aggregate value of around about 115 million. So that money will, will be put to work sooner rather than later. And it just shows that even uh, at a time when you know, market conditions are tough and, and the asset cost overall is out of favor, invariably there's one or two exceptions where uh, you know, companies can raise new money and are seeing uh, interesting investment opportunities. And how does that uh, figure of 140 million, how does that compare to the average kind of fundraising you might see in this kind of uh, case? Is that a lot of money or is it a little money? I mean, how do we uh, calibrate whether the trust has been particularly successful or not very successful? Well, in, in the context of uh, current fundraising conditions, it's very successful because there's not an awful lot of money being raised at the moment for good reason. Um, a number of investment trust companies that are trading on premiums, I think we've talked about this in previous podcasts, have been able to use their premium ratings to tap out new shares. And we talked about the investment trust companies like City of London and Merchants and, uh, you know, Finsby Growth and Income and investment trust companies of that nature that are very popular retail investors. But aside from that, the, the ones that have more institutional investor bases, uh, it, it's become very, very quiet. And our expectation for the next few months is that you won't see an awful lot of kind of large placings or C shares or even IPOs in our sector. I mean, and that's true. That's not an investment company story. That's across the whole marketplace at the moment. But where there is uh, new capital being raised, it's invariably be for those operating companies 
that need money to get them through this particularly difficult point in the cycle, uh, you know, to basically shore up their balance sheets. For investment trust companies, obviously, that doesn't apply, but you can bet that actually there will be some investment trust companies who will be uh, looking to take advantage of those rights issues and, and follow their money on some of their more attractive ideas. But 140 million in this context is a very strong result, and particularly in, in terms of what you'd expect to see over the next few months. And in terms of the price that these shares are issued at, obviously you mentioned the fact that in this case, the investment trust was already trading at a significant premium. In other words, the share price was higher than the reported net asset value per share. Uh, so how do they set the price? And do they prefer to increase the amount of shares they issue rather than uh, going for a higher share price? In other words, other investors, existing investors in the investment trust, what reassurance can they take that they're not going to be disadvantaged by the uh, the fundraising that is going on? So the, the key thing to remember with the vast majority of fundraising for any investment trust company, it's done at a premium to NAV. Now, that's very important because if it were to be different, i.e. a discount to NAV, then that would be potentially be dilutive to existing shareholders. Now, that happens incredibly rarely. It needs shareholder permission in order to do it. And when we have seen it, uh, we saw it a little bit uh, during the global financial crisis of 12 years ago. It was because uh, an investment trust company had got itself into a spot of bother and needed to raise more money quickly. So we saw it in the listed private equity side, for instance. So the vast, vast majority of um, fundraising is done at a premium level. Now, that means it's accretive. So it's good news for existing shareholders. They, their NAV per share will see a benefit to that. In the case of supermarket REIT, the way that the placing price seems to be struck, it was done at a premium to NAV and a little bit of a discount to the, the share price at the moment they announced the deal. So somewhere betwixt the two is where they fell upon in terms of the price. And that's kind of what you would expect, frankly. We've seen that for some of the listed infrastructure funds in recent years as well, where they have traded on big premiums. You expect a bit of a discount to the current share price, but certainly a reasonable premium to the NAV. So I guess the final point to make about that, though, is that if you do buy shares in a placing like this, or indeed, if you ever buy an investment trust, which is trading at a premium, if you pay the, the market price, which is above the net asset per share, it obviously reduces the yield which you're getting on the underlying uh, return from that investment trust. But the yield you were quoting on supermarket income, REIT, is that the yield at the price of which it was the placing has been done? Or is it the yield based on the net asset value or some other net calculation? How do, how do we work out what is the effective yield that we're actually going to receive on an investment trust around an issue of this sort? So when you see uh, yields quoted, it should always be on the share price at the current share price or the previous close. So when you see a yield in the, in the back of the newspaper and you see those tables of stats, that's based on the share price. Invariably, it's on a historical basis. So it's looking back over the previous 12 months and seeing what dividends have been paid. Uh, now, at a time when uh, dividend cuts and suspensions have been made, and that might not necessarily be the true yield going forward. So you've got to be a little bit careful in that regard. And in, indeed, there are some investment trust companies that will provide target dividends, say they expect to pay whatever it is. And that might be, frankly, a little bit higher than the historical levels. But it's always calculated on, on the share price, um, never on the net asset value. Because that, in effect, is what that's what you're actually going to get uh, as a percentage return on your the price you paid assuming the share price doesn't change between now. That's correct. And that's in line with what you'd expect for operating companies. You know, when we talk about, you know, the banks, BP Shell and so on and so forth, whenever you see the yield on those particular companies, it's based on their share price. And at the moment, a final question uh, arising from that, Simon. I mean, what 
has been happening to the yields on investment trusts? Let's stick to the, first of all, to the equity investment trust. What's been happening to the yields on those uh, as the market has fallen? Is it possible to make comparisons with uh, other sources of income return in these, uh, in these market conditions? So as the market has fallen, so yields have, have risen. And I'm slightly hesitant how we, we talk about this, but at the moment, the yields look at pretty attractive levels. But then you've got to bear in mind the possibility of dividend cuts. So if we kind of look at one subsector in particular, which is UK equity income, where I know there's, there's a lot of interest with funds such as uh, Finsbury Growth and Income, Lowland, Murray Income and, and funds of that nature, then the average yield, again, this is on a historical basis, looking at the share price, is about 5.2% at the moment. That's looking on a market cap weighted basis. Now, clearly, that's quite an attractive yield. The question is, is that sustainable? And this comes back to what we talked about uh, in podcasts previously, uh, in terms of the, the use of revenue reserves and maybe enhanced dividends and so on and so forth. But just on a historic basis, that looks like a pretty attractive yield, five, five plus percent. So as long as you're prepared for the fact that the dividend cuts and so on may actually produce uh, an income which is lower than that. But as you say, it is a, on the face of it an attractive looking starting point, at least. Simon, that's all we've got time for this week. But I think it's been very instructive. And thank you for your normal, uh, wise and uh, informative answers to the questions. Well, I look forward to uh, talking about this again next week. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.